problem I've noticed has less to do with people trusting other people and has more to do with people trusting themselves. Um, and a big part of that is that they're terrified of themselves because they have been told they're too much their whole life. Welcome, and thank you for joining us for another episode of the How For Her Human Expansion Realized podcast. These podcasts are the creative artistry inspired by our weekly Gather For Her conversations that take place in real time. They are the culmination of co-created and harvested wisdom that is palpable during these gatherings around our virtual fire. Our hope is that in a practice of deep listening with us here, you will feel our hands at your back in the journey of realizing your own personal expansion, leaving each listening experience with a spark that ignites your how. This week, our hosts are joined by author Katie Hunt Sturm for a conversation around authenticity and reimagining our superpowers that follows many different threads, including neurodivergence, community building, and the cost of industrialization. Welcome, and I guess my question is, what would you have us know that I didn't say? What would you have us know about you that I didn't say? I think... The main thing is that my book is like, not my book that I'm writing, but the book of my life is still unwritten. So I'm still growing and I'm still changing. And, you know, while peace sewing has been at the heart of it, like there, there's been so many manifestations of it through my life. And so that's about the only thing in case someone needed to hear that this morning, that just because you're identity looks different than it was 10 years ago doesn't mean it's not the same core truth and core story. Tina, I'm going to ask you to kick off the conversation. I love how I can think and you're there, but um, you know Katie the best and I really respect uh, depth in relationship and mm -hmm. um I, I, I ask you, what would you have us know about Katie and where would you like to kick off the conversation? Well, Katie's just launched her, her podcast. So that's where I want to go. Uh, she just launched her podcast called Coming Unforgotten. And uh, episode zero, it's, it's, her, it's her personal journey. It's what, what brought her to the microphone. Uh, brought you to the microphone. I like to say, I don't like to say her when I'm talking right at you. Um, brought Katie to the microphone. And um one of the, there's many things that I love about you, admire about you and learn from you. And uh, if I had to sum it up, it's, a, it's around, uh, around inclusivity and diversity. And somehow or other, the expanse of, of your understanding of divergence um, and your ability to hold such a massive container um, to and teach us all how to be inclusive to me is really the big, um, the big imprint on my heart. And somehow it's, it has something to do with it's actually not a container at all. Like it's not this, it's this. So I want to jump into being, becoming unforgotten and what that means for you. And um, yeah, that's it. What is it? Wherever you want to go. Oh, okay. So my turn. All right. <laughs> um, let's see. Well, I think, uh, is it okay if we just take a meditative moment? Is that all right, ladies? Yeah. Okay. Just feeling this need to just ground a little bit. 
so I'm going to encourage anybody who's with us today um, to take a moment. If you can, maybe set the soles of your feet on the ground where you're at. Connect with your breath as your feet touch that ground, that earth. I encourage you to feel um, the interconnectedness rising up through the soles of your feet to know that the earth is alive, that the earth connects us, that my feet here touching the earth connect with Shar, they connect with Christina, they connect with Tina, they connect with you. Allow yourself to feel that connectedness. Allow yourself to recognize that you occupy this unique space in time and place. And then just as you breathe in, Recognize that the breath that fills your lungs is filled with wonder. And that there is space for you here. And then just let's do a big exhale and just like shake out anything. Because for me it's early and so I need to shake out my early morning moment. <laughs> and have a sip of coffee. Um, so I am very excited about my podcast and, um, I'm excited about where it's going to go. Um, I'm, I'm excited about the things that I've been talking about for years. I'm excited about the things I've been studying. Um, I think the big push was realizing that there were a lot of people who were feeling like misfits spiritually. And it especially crystallized during COVID um, with communities moving online. So, you know, in a lot of ways, religious communities get most of their depth and breadth in the in-person gathering, right? Like, um, it's really easy to overlook someone who's a jackass online if, oh, can I say that on, on this? I hope so. Um, <laughs> I should have checked the rules regarding swears before I opened my mouth. Um, but it's, you know, when you show up at a church service on a Sunday morning and you see the guy who's been posting vitriol on Facebook and he walks up to you and he hands you a cup of coffee and he gives you a big hug, it's really hard. You know, it's hard to kind of be filled with resentment and hate. But with COVID, all of a sudden we lost the hugs. We lost the awareness of that face-to-face -face contact. And I watched as friend after friend, acquaintance after acquaintance just ran because all they were seeing was the the kind of social media or even I mean even the online church experience. It was vitriolic. It was, you know, and a lot of communities, you know, I watched a lot of communities who struggled to launch digitally. So that was, that's, you know, and then just kind of wanted to do the same thing on a camera and it didn't work and they got frustrated. And what really emerged throughout all of that is this whole understanding of like, we need to actually be who we really are. Like not, 
not some preconceived notion. You know, I'm looking at especially Gen Z and millennials who are like, oh, I love Jesus, but I'm not a Christian. And I'm like, well, guys, that's, that's kind of the, the thing. Just because you don't look like some prescription of Christian doesn't mean like following Jesus. Like it, 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 it just became weird. And people lost their sense of tradition. They lost their sense of language. They lost their sense of like, how do I describe myself? And so becoming unforgotten, my friend, a, a couple years before COVID stamped, wrote the book Lives of Unforgetting, which talks about truth, you know, which we've always, or I've always heard. I was a philosophy major in undergrad. So, you know, truth is this abstract, perfect ideal. But the Greek is aletheia, which is like coordinated to... Um, I totally lost my train of thought. Um, no, unforgotten. Aletheia, the river Lethe, which you cross, and if you touch even a toe in it, you forget everything, right? And ah being the opposite of that. So it's this idea that becoming unforgotten means uncovering and remembering everything about who you truly are, who you were truly meant to be, and understanding that that looks different for every single human. It's not an industrial world. Humans are not industrial cogs and wheels, that we are these unique creations and manifestations of matter and energy and swirling bits of water and flesh and magic. And so there's absolutely no way I can be a cog in the wheel next to another cog in the wheel. And it's almost like industrialism was this like horrific, heinous blip that tried to convince us all to be the same. Jump in, Christina. I know you're you're just like chomping. Yeah, there's there's so many places that I that I that I want to to go with this because what you're talking about, particularly at the, at the beginning, is that we when we've started dehumanizing one another because we forgot to see each other as the complex beings that we are, with all of the the light and the shadow and and uh, um, the 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 ability to do great good and to do some horrific things sometimes and we've lost that um that 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 ability to be reminded oh yeah you're a person and you love your family too and oh oh yeah you like coffee right <laughs> like all the all all of the things and so i i guess what i'm curious about and maybe not just with your podcast but how do you, um, you, you talked about holding spaces, holding containers, or Tina talked about that with you. How, um, how, do, you, how do you do that in, in your world? And where did that um, evolve? How did that evolve for you? Gosh, so a number, gosh, I, I mean, so it's something I've always done without having language for it. Um, it's kind of one of the things I was born into the world able to do. Um, but as I've tried to figure out what it is I do so that I can help other people understand how to, how to have these containers for people. Um, like a big part of it is acceptance of what is in a person as opposed to trying to um, expect something of them. So it's recognizing, okay, this is who you are and this is where you're at at the moment. And while I may disagree intellectually with you, like you're still a human, you're still a person. 
Um, one of the things I, I, I touch on in episode zero that actually is going to be quite a large season of its own eventually is that I have this cornerstone bedrock belief that emotions are the bedrock of empathy and that they're the language of the human heart. And I think because the industrial world spent so much time demonizing emotions, um, whether it was, you know, the hysteria of the patriarchy, right, where our uteruses make us irrational and crazy, or whether it's the toxic masculinity that prevents men from actually being allowed to show any sort of emotion or feeling um, and having that be shamed out of them. What I've found is that even something as simple as creating a space where someone knows they can show whatever emotion they're feeling without being shamed or judged for it is a really important place for that. Um, and I think the other big tool, aside from empathy and emotional, like emotional language, emotional um, skill, emotional intelligence, that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> um, the other cornerstone of it is going to be um, assuming best intentions when someone opens their mouth. So, you know, I mean, people say horrible stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like there's some stuff that comes out of people's mouths where you're just like, wow, you made that choice today. You, you let those words come right out of your mouth and you did not think about that. But, but um, when I assume best intentions behind what someone says, or when I try to understand, when I'm listening to understand instead of listening to respond, I have much better success at holding those spaces. So can you connect, like, tell us more then about your superpower. How does that connect to, to your superpower? All right. So I, as I said earlier, I feel like all of us are neurodivergent. Neurodivergence, a term that is, um, has begun gaining in popularity um, and acceptance among autistic communities, among those with ADHD, various forms of kind of like mental difference. Um, but I think the reality is that we're all neurodivergent. Um, and I think that I totally just lost my train of thought. And so I'm going to have you repeat the question, Christina. I'm sorry. I want you to connect. Actually, why don't we start with, um, define neurodivergent for us. Define neurodivergent. Okay. Yeah. So in the, like, in the 20th century, someone decided what normal was, <laughs> like how you're supposed to think normal, um, how you're supposed to approach a problem normal, how you're supposed to see the world normal, how you're supposed to communicate normal. And most of the time, normal is industrialized, uh, colonialized, uh, pretty much white supremacist. Um, it's often waspy, so Christian. Uh, or Protestant Christian in particular, um, it is a belief. It, it's kind of the way in which we accept that people are commodities, and and like, yeah. And then it's also the undergirding of like the dual message to the world of fit in and be the best, right? And you can't do both at the same time. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you're the best at something, you're inherently not like everybody else. But that's the competing message of neurotypical life. So neurodivergent 
is basically an approach that looks at worldview, that looks at the way in which people engage with the world, that looks at people's language in the world. And it basically says, okay, so you're not, you're not fitting into that typical mold. You're not fitting into that typical mindset. And you're engaging with things emotionally, intellectually, spatially, physically, in a way that diverges from whatever arbitrary normal was established in the 20th century. Oh, and so superpowers. Yes, you wanted to know about superpowers. I found my train. Woo! Okay. <laughs> train of thought. Back on track. Um, so the thing is about neurodivergence is that it's not anything new. Like, it's a new term, but, you know, I, I mean, I think about Tina's show, Oh My God, and I think about the, the women we burned, right? And the main reason that they were burned is because they couldn't code switch, right? Like, they couldn't. I mean, they were just different. They were divergent from the norm and they just couldn't code switch and fit in enough to convince the people that like they weren't a threat. Now, people have a huge like risk assessment, threat assessment, you know, it's, it's biological in some ways, but there's suspicion and fear and all that. But when we embrace neurodivergence as our superpower, what we're acknowledging is that like we were brought into this planet as unique specific individuals with particular giftings and you know my friend a good friend of mine who has Tourette's he says you know like it's a pain it, it is a pain to have Tourette's and it's it's severe Tourette's like he lives in the south and occasionally he will say things in public that are wildly inappropriate and he also recognizes that his Tourette's also gives him excessive adrenaline so it means that he can hit deadlines when other people are falling apart like so, and for me, with my neurodivergence, my empathy and my ability to create space is huge, right? So my challenges have been around setting boundaries and making sure I'm not taking on more than I'm supposed to and making sure that when people violate my boundaries, I escort them gently out of my circle of care. Um, but I think each of us kind of when we look at how we're wired, when we look at how our brains work, when we look at how our hearts engage with the world, we can start to see that we have this unique gift to offer and that nobody else in the world, like literally no other person on the world is able to do it like you can do it. So it, in some ways there's a lot of work that needs to be done because that's, you know, what you were talking about, the neurotypical is that, that like often our upbringing, right? Our schooling, our parents at a very young age, um, and this is just how they were raised, right? Is that you have, you have to follow this, um, particular way of being, this is acceptable. And, um, and so for, for people, you know, and Tina's talked a little bit about this, like this, if you're too big, then you're, and you're too much, you try to minimize yourself, right? And, or if you're different, you try to, okay, get back into, in, in, into to the box and so there is there's so much um almost dismantling of of, of beliefs that um so I'm, I'm curious uh maybe tina you want to tag off of that a little bit well <laughs> otherwise yeah. i'll just keep talking well where i want to go is actually kelly Beatty in the comments here has just mentioned something um about the creation of psychological safe places where we can bring our whole selves to what we do. 
And what I what I want to encourage us uh, to remember, and curious what you think about this, Katie, and and what we need to do, maybe not do, is that we actually I can't remember who said this before. Somebody on Gather said this before. We actually always walk into the room with our whole selves. We're never not our whole selves, but it's almost like we live we live we've we've created a container for ourselves within a container within a container within a container. And, uh, and so I'm curious what, um, what, I don't know where you want to go with this Katie, because you're not really a, it's not about the how I don't get that with you. It's about the what and, and the who and the why you might be more of the how person, Christina, but you know, I think, I think I just want to name, uh, name the, an awareness of, of mul- we're in multiple containers of generational, generational boxes um, and, uh, and what I'm hearing you say, Katie, with your book become, sorry, not your book, your podcast. <laughs> Did you hear me drop that? Is that podcast turning into a book, um, <laughs> of becoming unforgotten? Uh, are we unforgetting boxes? Are we unforgetting containers? Are, is, is that what we're doing? Are we dismantling it ourselves first and then working our way out? Um, sort of. I I actually think so I'm I'm gonna push back a little bit and I actually don't think we all bring our whole selves into every room. Um because I think I I very deeply believe in energetic connections between people. I'm I'm woo everybody, just FYI. Like this that's who I am. But, you know, some people might call them soul ties. Some people might call them energetic soul links or whatever. I mean, but the reality is, is that especially for those of us who have experienced trauma, people did steal bits of our soul and people did steal bits of our identity. And so there is a lot that has to be done to heal and recover those before they actually can show up in the room. Um, and I don't think even, you know, for some of those, I don't think they were boxes within boxes, although that is a big part of the work. So as soon as I was trying to get pregnant with my daughter, all of a sudden, all the generational boxes came up and the matriarchal line in my family was this huge issue that had to be addressed because it was affecting my physical body. It was affecting my mental state. It was affecting my heart. I was terrified of having a girl because I was like, oh my gosh, any girl I have, I'm going to destroy. Like all the women in my family are destroyed. You know what I mean? But when it came to like the pieces of me that were traumatized, someone did legitimately steal a bit of myself that I energetically had to claim back. Um, I had to actually, you know, I work you, you know, Chris, I had to work with Chris on doing some soul retrieval. You know what I mean? Like I had to call those pieces back to me because they were so freaking scared that they were off like in the hinterlands trying to just like hide out. But I don't know if that answers your question. Well, I just want to thank you for naming that. And I want to toss to you if it feels appropriate, Char, around what just opened up in the space. Yeah, I, I, I do. I, I, I'd like to, I'd like to ground this conversation again, because I feel like, why is this conversation important? If you've just joined us and you're like, what are they talking about? Like, what, like, where did I land? And so, you know, for me, I I can only reflect what comes up for me when I'm listening. And again, listening through the words is like in in the past or in my experience, community building happens 
when you fit into a preconceived mold, you know, you fit into a community, but really um, what I'm hearing and actually what I'm also learning through indigenous culture is community building is holding space for the remembering, the recollection and the receiving of an individual's highest gifting. And in that interweaving and interconnecting to build community. Where I trip up, so I, A, I'd love to like, I'd love to, is, is this conversation, is the purpose of this conversation about community building? Why is this conversation important today? Why are we having it today? Because there's a reason it's today, even though it will live on <laughs> from here. Um, and B, where what lands for me in, in in what I heard Katie say was, and it's something that I've struggled with in the past, but it's also my gifting. Holding acceptance for someone exactly where they're at, holding acceptance. And on the other side, holding space with positive anticipation and excitement for their absolute and complete greatness. That is, that is my role as a community builder. And it's a role that I love and hate every single day of my life. So, so where does this take us? And, and why, again, why this conversation? Why now? Why today? Why is it important? Yeah, that's a great question, Char. I think the main reason that I think this conversation is so important right now is like it's multifaceted. Um, the first being that we're leaving the industrial age. Um, and that is an enormous shift. I mean, it's absolutely, um, when you think about Gutenberg and the difference that happened in the world as soon as books could be printed, um, we're, we're talking about that level of shift where everything in the world is about to change, right? So, and it's already changing fundamentally. So you've got digital world, right? And COVID absolutely magnified that for so many of us. Um, there's the globalization aspect in that, you know, I right now know what's happening in Ukraine. That was not the case. 70 years ago, I would find out what was happening in Ukraine, you know, seven, eight days later when it came out in the newspaper. If it's 100 years ago, I might hear about it if, you know, it happens to filter through either my parish priest or if it happens to, you know, but but everything's changing and information is everywhere and wisdom is really hard to find. And so I think that the piece in here about the community and how to how to hold those authentic spaces for community. Um, there's a real urgency for it right now because there's so much confusion. There's so much going on, and there is that huge tension, right, of someone's highest good and where they are right now, and the love that connects the two. And like, so there's all these little moving pieces. And people are still being raised with the mindset of this is how the world works. 
and then they're getting into the world and realizing that's not how it works at all. You know, I think about the number of people in my age and younger who were told, go to college, get a degree, get a job, buy a house, and you'll be good. You know, and none of us have achieved that goal. You know what I mean? Like none of us have unlocked that level of adulting. You know, most of us are kind of like, oh crap, like we are still paying rent and you know, I'm 43 and I still rent and everybody's like, why don't you buy? And I'm like, it's not how the world actually works right now. Um, so that, that for me is really the why is that the world is changing really, really, really fast. And the neurodivergent people are actually the people who can handle that. So, you know, it's like, um, because they don't look at the world through industrialized lenses. So they're less, they're less in, uh, they're less uh, invested in the death throes, right? You know, the, I think about the politicians, the boomers, the people who like really jived with that. It, it meant something to them. It, it grounded them. And they are panicking because they're like, oh, crap. Like, oh, my gosh. It's like, a, like I said in my podcast, it's like a beached whale, right? Like, it's heaving and you just don't know when it's going to explode. And and that's like, it. Like the last thing you want to do is be on the beach around a, a poor deceased whale who's about to blow. Um, it's really damaging. But it's what's going on. And so those of us who are neurodivergent often... So there's kind of a few different kinds of neurodivergences, right? There are those of us who can hold a lot of things at once. Um, and I don't want to say we're multitaskers because most of us kind of, we aren't multitaskers. We're just really fast code switchers. Like we can just switch back and forth between different codes at different times. Um, and then there are some people who can just like hyper focus so they can tune out the death throes, right? They're just like, oh, I'm just on this path. That's that's my husband, Aaron, like just this path, like I'm going down this road and no one's going to stop me, you know, and we need that. Um, and then there's other neurodivergences where it's like, um, it's less the back and forth and less the single focus and more just that I'm going to just be, you know, and I'm just going to like, my whole presence is just going to be like this little oasis for everybody else who's driven by their adrenaline right now. Um, and so with those kind of things, there's this really unique opportunity to create a new kind of community engagement. You know, um, sorry, you mentioned back in, you know, community being where you show up and you be the same. And that is actually relatively new phenomenon. You know, it, it really is that like kind of, I mean, it's, it, it's not quite new, but it's definitely more colonial, right? Like it's the, you have to be like these like European Christian settlers, right? Like it's, it's, and it's toxic. And actually when I think in terms of spirituality, so this, this is the thing that I've been really passionate about, especially with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and I've read some, okay, if you get a chance to read Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove's, um, oh gosh, uh, reconstructing the gospel because what he talks about is how basically us evangelicalism isn't really gospel it's actually um slaveholder religion right and so colonialism imperialism the beautiful thing for those of us who have actually studied the text is that the whole point of the new testament is all are invited 
like and all your squirreliness and all your weirdness like that's why they use the metaphor of the body like one body many parts right like i could be a finger i could be a nostril i could be a tooth i could be a spleen or i could be you know beautiful eyeballs or whatever but we're all needed for our own uniqueness so that that's the root and then all of a sudden white slaveholder religion comes out and it's like oh no 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 we have to all be the same you know and there's a lot that comes from the common sense enlightenment in Scotland, um, which talks about how you have to, like, if it doesn't make sense, if it doesn't make common sense, then it's not valid, which is completely antithesis to mystery and wonder and all of my woo-ness. But it was a very powerful movement in colonialism because they could use it to justify all sorts of things. And then basically you get this religion that has dominated, you know, this this turtle island, right? Like the the whole of the Americas in saying like, you have to think this way, you have to believe this way. And because of all of the enslavement and genocide, you somehow have to craft a spirituality that's completely devoid of empathy. Because no, like, no matter what you do, in order to beat someone, enslave someone, murder children, like any of that, you have to completely shut down your empathy. And so you have to over-intellectualize your spirituality to be like about appropriate thoughts because then you have an us versus them mentality. But as I said, it's not the, it's not a ancient tradition. It's not even like orthodox tradition it really is a colonialist imperialist bastardization of spirituality there was a lot there so i'm just gonna pause yeah that was that was awesome i i have a quick question i i guess is how do we create communities and not leave the the linear thinkers, the mechanistic thinkers, the, um, the those who have actually built our current, the the current water we swim in. How do we how do we not leave them behind so that we just perpetuate another us and them? It's a great question. Um, so I've done a lot of work in around the area of fundamentalism. I worked with um, the Irish School of Ecumenics on their fundamentalism project. Um, I've run a number of workshops on fundamentalism. Um, and a lot of times people get really, really worked up about fundamentalists, you know, and let's be real. There are some fundamentalists out there who have done some like egregious violence. Like I'm not saying that that is not the case. However, you know, your crazy uncle at Thanksgiving <laughs> isn't necessarily a tyrant who's massacring people. He's probably just, you know, a guy who's confused and who really, really holds firmly to his belief. So I think the first important thing in engaging fundamentalism is understanding the context, right? Understanding the water they're swimming in. So for most of the people who have embraced this worldview, they lived through nuclear holocaust. They lived through a Shoah holocaust. They have watched genocide. And before their eyes, they have witnessed global devastation such that people never heard of or imagined before mass media. And for most of those people, they're feeling deeply insecure, deeply frightened. And at the same time, white colonial Christianity told them they weren't allowed to have feelings. 
No one gave them tools for processing their feelings. No one gave them space to feel their feelings. And basically, they are trying to over-intellectualize absolutely everything they're going through without realizing that they are not actually in their rational mind. They are in their lizard brain, right? They're in their amygdala because they're scared. And so lizard brain is turning them into cornered raccoons to kind of like lash out at people. So the way that I have found most helpful for engaging fundamentalists, um, providing a safe place. So I think about one of my beloved friends I met when I was um, working with the ICCJ over in Europe. And he identified as a fundamentalist Muslim. And this was not too long after 9-11. So like him admitting that to me was already like, he did it very defiantly. <laughs> like, I'm a fundamentalist Muslim and you're an American evangelical and we're supposed to hate each other. And I was like, no, I, I, I like you. You're fine. Um, and that was part of it. As I'm like, you get to be you, right? Like, you get to be you. Um, and in talking with him, he shared some of his story. And that was really the first step is listening to people's stories of how they got to the place where they believe the way they believe. You know, and here we are in Berlin uh, for this conference with this gentleman. And he, we're going to one of the, one of the most historic synagogues um, that was ravaged by the Nazis and then taken over. And this gentleman wants to wear a Palestinian headscarf. <laughs> and, and, you know, like Israel-Palestine aside, that's a whole other conversation, but it was the context, right, of, you know, you're going into a place with deep history. And, and so before we went in, I just, I, I pulled him aside and I said, listen, this is going to cause some issues. So before we go in, I would like for you to explain to me what the purpose of this scarf is. What is its purpose? And why now? You know, help me understand. And he started talking and he started talking about how passionate he was about the situation of Palestinian children and how, and I, and I looked at him and I said, okay, I absolutely understand that. And I think we need to have a conversation about that as a group in our conference tonight. However, what do you think will change for you or those people if you choose to wear that headscarf into the synagogue at this time? Do you think that the synagogue personnel can do anything about that? Do you think that the people in our group are going to feel comfortable to talk with you about this if you do this? And it was like all of a sudden his eyes opened and he was like, Oh wait, you're actually acknowledging me. You're not shutting me down, but you're asking me what my desired outcomes are. And you're actually genuinely listening to me. And, you know, he took off the scarf and he tucked it in his pocket. It was still there, but it wasn't like, you know, covering his head and being a big, huge thing. But I've found over and over again, that to be the case where bringing people along is that keep bit of listening to understand and then also acknowledging there's normally something they're really passionate about underneath it but because of the whole framework of fit in but be the best they've never been allowed to experience their own muchness they've never been allowed to express desire i mean like the puritanical thing is real where it's like oh i'm sorry are we allowed to have orgasms are we allowed to talk about sex are we allowed to talk about actually enjoying a really good meal? Like, are we allowed to talk about, um, you know, any of these things that are basic human delights? 
and we've had to shove it all down. And so when we give people permission to be passionate, to be emotional, and also recognize that like, okay, we do need to move them somewhere because where they're at isn't healthy for us, but also it's not really healthy for them either. And it's like with someone who, um, with someone who maybe like, like has a cancer spot on their back, right? They can't see it, but if they don't do something about it, it'll spread. But like, you're not going to get a chance to look at someone's back and see a, like a, a cancerous spot unless they trust you and know that you're actually out for their good and not out to like shut them down. And I mean, and this is, I, I'm rambling a little bit, but so this is a perfect example. Okay. Like Tina knows me and knows that this is absolutely like ridiculous in my world, but um, it's Easter morning or Easter afternoon. I'm sitting on the lawn with one of my best friends here in Seattle and our kids are running around playing and we're eating like little charcuterie on the lawn and just enjoying the beautiful sunny day. And this guy walks up and he's running for office and he says, can I talk to you about my platform? And we both are like, okay, what party are you? And he said Republican. And my my friend is pretty socialist. So she was like, you probably don't want to be here. You can go ahead and move on. Um, and he he his first shot out the gate is, oh, right. I'm a Republican, so you're supposed to shoot me in the head. Is that right? And I was like, what? <laughs> what? But that's the story he had in his head, right? Was that like, my goal or our goal was to come after him for what he believed. And, and we were just like, no, no, it's all right. Just move on. Um, so anyway, it's this whole thing of allowing people to be who they are, but also recognizing that. Um, there's a piece here I want to come back to because um, in change work, in change work, it's, you know, we're, we're talking to people who are already in the why, like we're walking beside people who are, we are why people we're showing up for why, why, why. And, um, and why is a great driver in, but a how is, is how the why connects. And then I don't want to turn us into all how people here's how you do it. But you gave us, you actually gave us a how. And I want to make sure that that's clear here so that anyone listening goes, oh, when I'm in change work and I'm moving my why forward and I'm stuck, what do I do? You gave us a, a, the example of the gentleman you were with walking into a synagogue, had the head, the headpiece scarf thing on, and you, you listen to him. And I want to make sure that people hear that it's not just the listening. The equation isn't give the person the space of listening and then you're going to get what you want, which is not what you did. I want to make sure that that is like super clear that you listened, but then you also shared. There was a shared experience of listening in there. And then there was choice. And that gentleman had a choice and it was, and you, you, you all had a choice. And so in this particular circumstance, um, that space opening allowed for, to back to Char's word, community to happen you walked in as community and and it's also just as possible that that won't happen like just what happened on your lawn there with the fella I was like wah, 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 wah. and and I I wanted I just want to name the awkwardness of that and come back to your superpowers because I think it's your ability to hold 
either of those things happening, that is a superpower. And, and I think those of us moving forward who aren't as who aren't in your experience, but are in our own change work, need to come back to our superpowers because that's what we're bringing to the change table. <laughs> change table, this made me think of being a mom. Okay, um, and um, I don't know what my question is. I think maybe I'll pass to you, Shar, as a question. Do you have a, a question of where I'm going with this to help us out to close this? Yeah, I think if, if I could put a question forward, it is knowing what we know, from this conversation, knowing what we don't know from this conversation, the word that really landed for me is, oh, I get it. This conversation is all about trust building. This conversation has been about trust. And so my question to round out the conversation is in a simple guidance as possible knowing how you know divergent we are yet interconnected where do we go from here in a step forward to build more trust yeah so i had a great seminary professor who explained trust uh the word pistuo <laughs> as less about like an intellectual thing and more the feeling when you're about to sit on a chair right like it's not you don't think about it when you're about to sit on a chair you just sit in the chair you know um and that's the kind of level of trust now the biggest problem i've noticed has less to do with people trusting other people and has more to do with people trusting themselves um and a big part of that is that they're terrified of themselves because they have been told they're too much their whole lives so the first thing I would encourage people to do if you're trying to create a trust building environment is recognize that you are the first person you need to trust. Um, and so some of that for you, like, honestly, you may need to go to counseling. If you have trauma in your life, you are going to need to address that trauma because so often trauma manifests in a, in a death of self-trust, because how could we let ourselves get in that situation? That's step one. If you are experiencing trauma, if you are experiencing pain, please find a good counselor who is trauma informed. Now, number two, I think the next step in terms of that is um, so first we deal with our trauma, we deal with the places that we need the help. The second thing is really um, there, there, I'm in a Christian tradition. So like there's a verse in the New Testament that says, take every thought captive. Now that doesn't mean like we steal all our thoughts and like stick them in jail. However, we do need to watch the way we talk about ourselves and the way we talk to ourselves. So one year for Lent, I gave up negative self-talk. And so it was things like, but I didn't even notice what I was doing until I started this for Lent. But like I would come out of the kitchen and I would spill a little bit of coffee on the floor and I would start to say, oh my gosh, I'm such an idiot before I even thought about it. And I'm like, okay, I need to talk to myself like I'm a three-year-old that I adore. And I'm like, oh, it's okay, honey. We'll just wipe it up, you know? And once I made that switch of capturing those negative self-talk moments and instead really nurturing the little kid inside me who's so terrified to be big, who's so terrified to be so much, that was a huge shift for me in allowing myself to listen to myself 
Now the other, um, another, I, I've got a lot. So listen to my podcast and I'll touch on lots of these over the next few months. Um, but I think the, so we've got counseling, we've got evaluating self-talk. Um, and then I think the third really important thing is surrounding yourself with people who see you as you are and love you as you are who don't put unnecessary expectations on you. And for some of you, that's going to be really hard because you may not have learned how to do boundaries. Um, and so you may not be able to recognize who honors those boundaries and who violates those boundaries. Um, but a counselor will help. Um, <laughs> but, you know, surrounding yourself with people who see you. So it's why I connect with Tina. It's, you know, we see each other. We, you know, we witness each other and, so I think that's an important thing. And then also knowing your own story. Um, and for those of you who feel really awkward writing, like with pen and paper, I love to journal with pen and paper. I've been journaling my whole life. I also blog, so I type a lot. Um, but for those of you who don't feel comfortable with that, grab Otter or some other AI app and literally just start telling your story into an app. Um, like just let, even if it comes out squirrely and all over the place, your story deserves to be known, even if it's only known to yourself. So start with those things that come up, that rise to the surface, talk them out, write them out, whatever it looks like, and then let them float and then let the next thing emerge. I hope that's helpful. You know, it's so interesting because we talk so much about at, at Powerhouse about um, hands at your back and um, and this, you know, for the for the listening audience, uh, do you have your own back, right? Have your own back first. So um, thank you. Thank you for that, Katie. Those great, great takeaways. I want to circle us back to also do the, um, to something Shar said earlier around community and remembering and that which connects to Katie's piece around empathy and lost empathy. And what I'm hearing in these uh, four instructions uh, also reminds me of something that Echo, uh, Echo and Sammy said in our wellness reset on the leader path. And we all, and we and on and gather, I remember we all looked at each other and went, is it really that simple? And we're like, wow, it really, what, what if it really is that simple? And they were, and they were offering Katie, um, you know, taking a moment to ask yourself, do I want to sit by that tree right now? What's my body saying? Oh, it really does. I'm going to sit by this tree for five minutes. And it was like, is it really that simple? Is it really that simple to watch the way we talk to ourselves, to to deal with our trauma, to surround ourselves with people who see us as we are and love us as we are and to know our own story? Well, maybe in community building, that's where it begins with hands at our back. As always, we are so grateful for your deep listening with us. We want you to know that there is a community here that you may not know about yet. We gather virtually every Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific time for these live conversations, and we call it Gather for Her. This is the place where we begin to weave our individuality together to remove silos and place our hands at each other's backs for activated, intentional action towards a world we all want for 2030 where we prepare for a better world. When you're ready, we're here. Find us at powerhouse.com and get social with us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. 
If it feels right, you can support this inspired wisdom through Patreon at patreon.com powerhouse. Until next time, keep listening and know we're always here, ready to gather with you.